Hello, and welcome back. You are joining us today for our 20th episode of Opportunity Thrives. I'm Jean Sharp, and I'm here for Jason Mitchell today. On this show, we are committed to better supporting the needs of today's secondary students through interviews with students, teachers, administrators, technologists, and education influencers. We want to understand what's working in our schools today, what's not, and how we can impact positive, lasting change. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for our show. Please click on the podcast notes to leave us a review, provide your input, or send us your questions. You can also reach out to us at info at opportunitythrives.com. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Hogan, who is the host of a new market scale podcast series called Remote Possibilities. On this show, he dives into the technology that is revolutionizing the education industry with educators, startups, and thought leaders providing compelling insights into the future of education technology. Kevin recently had me on his show where we had a chance to chat about my thoughts on the future of education and what's important for education leaders to consider right now. I wanted to bring him on Opportunity Thrives to discuss his perspective on the future of education and how it pertains to the digital learning. Kevin, it's so great to have you on our show. Well, Gene, thanks so much for having me. This is uh, a lot of fun, isn't it, this podcast stuff? Yeah, it really is. Absolutely. So to begin with, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and about your background? Sure. Well, I basically have been writing about technology and its effects on society for since last century, at, at, in danger of uh, dating myself. Uh, some of my first bylines involved headlines with questions like, will email work in corporate America? <laughs> so I've uh, been writing about these uh, technologies and their transformations for a long time. Uh, it's been since about 2003 that I've been writing specifically about education. First, I was an executive editor over at Scholastic Administrator Magazine. And then for the past 12 years or so, I was uh, the director of content for Tech and Learning Magazine. And since the spring, since the pandemic, I've cast off into uh, new waters, uh, looking specifically at the remote technologies that have obviously transformed schools for better or for worse. Uh, so I have the podcast uh, that you were on. Thank you for joining me there. And I'm also now an editor at large at eSchool News, where I'm interviewing school district uh, officials. And that's called Getting There, where we talk about their responses to the pandemic through the use of technology and other things. Excellent. Well, you've certainly had an opportunity to have many conversations with education leaders across the spectrum from your podcast. And I'm wondering, to start us out today, from your perspective, how would you summarize the common themes and the, the strategies that you're hearing across the education market right now? Yeah, well, it's been a real privilege, actually, to uh, have uh, the number of conversations that I have. Uh, we're probably at podcast number 53, 54. Uh, we do them twice a week. Uh, and such as our conversation, just very thoughtful, smart, energetic, and uh, at the end, positive people who are directing their companies and their employees, not only to survive, but to actually try to find opportunity and thrive during this maddening time. So I would say the one general theme is folks are trying to keep their glass half full and take this opportunity to be progressive uh, and to to take steps and to to be better and not wallow in 
what is justifiably uh, a peer that you you could wallow and instead take advantage of it. Yeah, I think that's incredibly interesting right now as we think about how do we take the current situation and look forward to really find opportunities for change and, and meaningful change within that context. From your perspective, how are education leaders really addressing what we would call unparalleled changes that they're seeing right now and challenges they're seeing in education? Yeah, there, there's an interesting arc that I've, I've noted. I started my conversations in April, so that's really when we were all still kind of waist deep in, in everything that was happening. And at that time, I would say leaders, both on the industry side as well as on the educator side, was not to um, overdo it, but just survive. The districts I had directors of technology who were getting into cars and delivering hotspots to students. At that time, it was make the connection, try to keep the community together. I think that was true in the industry side as well. I mean, that CEOs were talking to their employees and just trying to keep a sense of community. And in many ways, the technology ended up enabling that to a degree that it might have been better before. Some districts leaders told me that they've never had more productive school board meetings than the ones that they had over Zoom. (laughs) Because there's an intimacy there, but it takes away some of the dynamics that you might have in an in-person event. So people probably not only from surviving, but began to take these tools and innovate. And I think that's what we're seeing happen now, both through the summer and then into the fall here, people saying, wow, maybe we should have done it this way all along when it comes to communication. I, I think communication is the, the the number one theme that I've noticed come out of this whole debacle. Yeah, definitely. I hear your comment about both communication and, quite frankly, relationships. And I think we're hearing the same thing in that regard. For those schools and districts that are effectively managing through these challenges, what would you say has been key to their approach and to their success? The one word that that keeps coming up in my conversations is empathy. And I think we talked about it a little bit when the you know, the phrase before the pandemic was social emotional learning and uh, addressing the whole child. I think empathy and really just caring about the people with whom you're working or you're teaching is a, is a common theme that has been effective for districts where forget about the Lexile scores, forget about attendance (laughs) or marking attendance. You you, want to care about attendance, but um, some of the old metrics that uh, schools used to hold as a key to success have been thrown out the window. And what it is now is about making sure that students feel safe, that they feel secure, and that they feel cared for. Yeah, without a doubt, we're definitely seeing that deeply human factor that's critical in terms of the relationships and in terms of of effective strategies. Can you tell me a little bit more about what are schools doing differently and how does it look, particularly from the student lens, the teacher lens, and even the parent lens? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it depends. And if we're just specifically talking about the United States, you know, we're talking about 15,000 different school districts, right? And for better or for worse, I mean, that's our model. So you have 15,000 different stories of what's happening, leave alone private schools and charter schools. So maybe it's a wobbly answer, but it kind of depends. And it also depends on whether you're fully remote, whether a district is hybrid or in some cases are all in person. Haven't seen too many of those, but I think the the effective hybrid and remote districts have found a way to use the technology. And I, I would say it, it was the professional development. Over the summer, 
they began to have plans. I mean, the, the spring was just let's try to connect and, and, and keep it together and get ourselves to the summer. Um, the effective districts who probably had a privilege, probably had money, uh, probably didn't have a, an equity issue, were able, and they, they also had students who already had technology in place. Maybe they already had an innovative one-to-one program and in some cases, a remote program, I think that they transitioned pretty easily, relatively easily, let's say, versus some districts that did not have those things in place. But the key there, I think, is professional development and obviously the the faculty and their ability to handle their students in this situation. Yeah, as you and I had talked about in our conversation, certainly as we think about the role that teachers play and the readiness of teachers to move fully online or fully to a remote environment has been a process. And I think you're absolutely accurate to say that over the summertime, there was more focus and more intentional professional development that was made available for teachers and they're they're more ready for the fall. Yeah. But I, I'm curious, you know, certainly we've, it's well documented and, and lots of conversation about what we experienced in the spring in a very rapid transition to remote learning. And there's certainly a lot that we're already learning in the fall. If you were to take a look at this point in time and think about your short list, whether it's a policy, a strategy, an expectation that you're seeing, what do you think will become part of the best practices for education when the pandemic is finally behind us? It's a good question. There are so many things that are that are up in the air. There's so many techniques, assumptions about how we teach and learn that are now under question. I'm hopeful that the one aspect, which is assessment, maybe can be taken apart and rebuilt to be something that is more accurate than than what it is now. Specifically, I mean, you, you look at the the, the chaos involving uh, SATs and ACTs before the pandemic. That was already on the table for discussion of whether that's an accurate measure. In my years of, of writing about ed tech, state assessments and the worries about teaching to the test and not having a true education experience for kids because all we're doing is trying to make sure that they show improvement on their state assessment tests. I think those we can take this opportunity now to completely change those methods and, and find a way to more accurately gauge student performance. Yeah, without question. And certainly when you think about assessment as a mark in the sand, ultimately what we're looking for is student growth over time, right? And how do you measure that? Correct. Yeah. And also in, in terms of, you know, kind of matching the ideas when we talk about personalized learning, mm-hmm. um, maybe we can have some personalized assessment, right? So maybe Johnny doesn't do well on, on standardized tests, but he has a fantastic digital portfolio of work, of written work that he can show. Maybe he can show through a Zoom meeting, through a Zoom interview, his uh, ability to communicate and, and do other skills. So the, the, the bubble test may become an anachronism. So do you think that from your perspective that schools are, are beginning to think about that? Are they ready for exploring things in different ways in order to better meet the needs of individual students? I think there are schools and districts that are especially progressive in in that sense. And again, I think the focus for those is mainly to get those sort of students into college and in some cases into, you know, the top 100, you know, whatever that dynamic is. But I think you're also starting to see in a more general sense, when you look at the ideas of micro-credentialing and badging and those sort of technologies 
technologies will come to the fore now that they weren't there before. And it doesn't have to be just about getting into an Ivy League college. I mean, this is just, you're going to school to learn and to be inspired and to find a career path. And that just doesn't necessarily have to do anything with the state standards. Right. And quite frankly, you have the opportunity then to leave high school with skills that you can it can show to an employer the kind of um, skill sets and competencies that you've been developing as well. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to ask you to put on a different hat. And that is the hat of a parent, which I know you are. So how would you like to see from your parent lens, schools thoughtfully consider? What would you, excuse me, let me start over. Kevin, I'm going to ask you to put on another hat, that of a parent, which I know you are. So what would you like to see schools thoughtfully consider when it comes to learning for your children? Yeah, well, that's very true. I'm sitting here in one of three uh, Zoom rooms in my home right now. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I have two boys who are in the middle of class, and my daughter is actually up on campus in New York, uh, but also has some remote classes as well. I have really been impressed as a parent, my involvement in my kids' education since the pandemic began. I have never spoken to teachers or counselors as much in the past six months than I have in 16 years or 18 years with my, my oldest. We've really come together. Now, again, I'm, I'm coming from a place of privilege. My uh, my kids go to private schools. It's not, uh, they're not in a, in a district where the scale situation might not give the teacher the ability to speak to, to all their students. But I do think that I would like to see schools keep these technologies in place for that communication. Going back to the remote possibilities, spoken with the CEOs of some special education companies uh, who are kind of leading the way and showing uh, not only for counseling and for special ed, but for mental health purposes, the ability for counselors to meet with multiples of children versus maybe the three or four that they could see in any given day in person. That's the long answer to the short answer, which is continue to use Zoom, (laughs) continue (laughs) to use these technologies for what they're good at. As a parent, I had the best back to school experience I ever had sitting in my uh, sitting in my office and talking with teachers who were sitting in their kitchens and their home offices about their plans for the fall. I don't need to go and sit in my kid's desk for 45 minutes and check my watch with 30 other parents to try to, uh, to get through the night, right? That's what I would say is find the best practices that you've done to make this year as effective as possible and keep them. Don't throw them away once we go back to whatever normal is. Great advice, because I think there are very definitely silver linings in what we have learned and what's been effective for our students and our families, as well as for teachers at this point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you think about the future of education and you think about what you've heard from education leaders across the country, how do you think the pandemic will change what schools look like, both in the near term and over the long term as well? Yeah, I think the repetition, the regulation the you know just the the day to day you know here's a class from seven fifteen to to eight twenty five and then you move over to your next class and even the idea of curriculum and the worksheet I hope those things will dissipate and what will remain is this idea of I don't know we used to call it project based learning right but it's just a, an approach to learning that is not something that is dictatorial 
uh, it will be more of a, a communal sort of experience, if that makes sense. It does. I think there's clearly those opportunities that are emerging for authentic learning to take place, oftentimes directed by the student themselves in terms of their choice and, and agency that they bring to the project itself. Yep. Excellent. So I'm going to ask you to stretch a little bit here, because I think that if you could advocate for, for education to consider one more change or one other change that you think could be uncomfortable at first, but certainly necessary when it comes to serving the learning needs of our students, what would be top of mind for you to advocate for? I think kind of going back a little bit to the assessment piece, just remove that stress, that adjective that students have and that worry that they have about making sure that they make the grade, right? It should be more about the the, the joy of learning and the joy of being inspired by having a relationship with teachers who are inspired by a particular topic and finding ways to go and succeed in those things, but without the, the stress, the anxiety of that assessment. So if assessments become more formative, they become more invisible. I'm not saying that there's no need to assess, obviously. You, you need to make sure that students are progressing, but do it in a way that is not as onerous as it is now particularly in this notion of it's an event, right? It's something that happens at a given point in time. And then we go back to other things that we do. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, know, we talked about the technologies are there to give teachers. I mean, right now, I mean, I think the dashboards are mostly for administrators for more high-minded data, but we can drive that data down to the teacher level where every day when students come in, they can take a a temperature of how kids are succeeding or not succeeding and where they could need some help. Absolutely. As I mentioned in in our conversations, I'm always kind of desperately looking for the glass half full uh, of of the situation. And the one that, the the one piece that keeps popping up is is the concept of uh, digital equity. You know, it came into really stark relief that every district had some issues with students not having access to the internet. And in, in 2020, that's just kind of a, a, a mind-boggling prospect, but it's it's what the reality was. One of the positives was that the industry responded, right? I mean, um, Google opened up, a lot of the telcos opened up to, to giving access. And that's something that I, I hope will continue during the pandemic and then even after the pandemic, but also the idea of not only having access, but having access to to information. So open education resources. I guess I already maligned the assessment industry, so I might as well malign the, the textbook industry. While I'm at it, I guess uh, they won't be sponsoring remote possibilities anytime <laughs> soon. But really, there's no reason why every student shouldn't be able to know how to get on and access accurate and real information without having to pay for it. It's almost become a human right as much as it is to have access to uh, running water and um, healthcare. But now I'm getting political. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, you know, to think about what we've learned in the basics, things we took for granted. And so I guess my question to you is, were there other assumptions, equity being one of them, certainly access being another, were there other assumptions that were made in in this context of school that we now need to overcome as we move forward? I mean, you can think about the uh, assumption of attendance, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. That you have to physically be in. I know my kids were always really proud when they had perfect attendance scores. Is that 
a metric that we should be using, especially if my kids had perfect attendance, but they probably also went to school a couple of days with the flu. Not really a badge of honor anymore, right? If you're if you're showing up sick at school, that's a that's a metric that I think can go away. And just other other aspects that I know that innovative districts and innovative schools have talked about in concept for many years. Uh, learning spaces. What is a learning space with the classroom and the rows of desks? I mean, back at, at, at Tech and Learning, I mean that was the beginning of every PowerPoint presentation. Right, it was a photograph from the 1900s of kids in desks, and then a, a photograph from 2019 of kids in desks. Well, kids aren't in desks less than six feet apart from each other anymore, so we're past that one. I don't think we're going back. So, learning space is definitely a big game changer going forward. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of things to think about there, Kevin. As we come to the end of our time, are there any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience? I guess the, the only thing is to kind of repeat what I've heard from the education leaders that I've had the, the the privilege to talk to, which is take this as an opportunity. Take this this moment, which is so terrible, and maybe if nothing else, that it's just a distraction from watching reality and, and, and try to turn it into something positive. I've kind of tried to take that advice just for my, my own mental health, but also have found that these great conversations and sharing best practices might turn into something that will be a net gain for all of us going forward. Well, I love your theme about opportunity on our podcast of called Opportunity Thrives. So very appropriate. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really um, interesting conversation and I know our listeners will enjoy this episode as we all think about how the future of education will look. And Opportunity Thrives listeners, thank you for your time today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we would love it if you would take just a minute of your time to share your feedback on our show by providing a review on either Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you listen. And please reach out to us with questions or comments at info at opportunitythrives.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time.